Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 56, Fujimori Widower. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Pumice corns when we pumice corns. Do something stupid like explode you when we do something stupid like explode us. Yeah, alright, kind of works. And today I'll be talking about Season 3, Episode 21, Black Widower, which first aired on April the 9th, 1992, another two-week gap between episodes. And I'm in South America this week, as I'm going to be talking about Alberto Fujimori, the former president of Peru, launched an auto-coup, cementing his power on April 5th, 1992, four days before Black Widower first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Good news, everyone. Christmas is sorted. Friend of the podcast Ben Baker, he of books fame, and also the fantastic podcast Don't Let's Chart, has just unleashed the ultimate guide to 90s Christmas television, entitled I Was Bored on Christmas Day. It's available from Amazon and Lulu, but buy it from Lulu if you can, because Amazon is Amazon. All your Christmas worries? Dealt with. While I'm here, thanks to Timothy Burleson, who got in touch to say that Yahoo! The fictional show featured in Colonel Homer that provides entertainment for Sons of the Soil is modelled on a genuine show called Hee Haw, which ran from 1969 to 1971, but was still in syndication when Colonel Homer aired. Also, we have to pause to note that Peter Alice, the voice of golf, has died since we last recorded. Alice is part of Retrospecticus Law, first mentioned in episode 19, Dead Webpage Society, and repeatedly since in our extremely popular Peter Alice Facts section that we haven't done for about 30 episodes. Our sympathies go to his family, and can someone please check on Bong Bong Marcos, as we haven't heard from him for a bit, and I don't want to start a Curse of Retrospecticus thing. On a happier note, though, while we're discussing people we've talked about before, Tom, does Nell Scoville ring a bell? I know of the Scoville scale for chilly heat, but apart from that, no... Well, Nell Scoville wrote a single episode of The Simpsons back in season two, and we discussed it in episode 24. One fish, Street Fighter, two fish, blowfish, bluefish. Never thought I'd have to say that again. <laughs> uh, but friend of the podcast, Paul Abbott, he of Head Ballet and Big Beatles sort out dual podcast fame, spotted that she is a one-time writer no more. Nell Scoville is the credited writer of season 32, episode nine, Sorry Not Sorry as broadcast on December 6th this year. Last Sunday, as we record this, near as damn it, 30 years after her first episode aired, on January the 24th, 1991. Blimey. I don't think any other show would be able to, to, to set that record or challenge it at this stage. Excellent. What, what a fact. Thank you very much for that, Paul. Right, better talk about the episode, I suppose. So, April the 9th, 1992. Although, speaking of ongoing episodic television concerns, four days before this aired, Macho Man Randy Savage became the WWF World Champion for the second and final time, defeating the Nature Boy Ric Flair at WrestleMania 8. 
an event which also saw future Simpsons guest star Brett the Hitman Hart regain the Intercontinental title from Rowdy Roddy Piper. Sadly, not Rowdy Roddy Peeper. <laughs> but Gareth, I hear you cry, what was the UK number one that week? Well, it was still Stay. But at number two, it's Right Said Fred again, this time with Deeply Dippy. This was prime Right Said Fred here, with three top five hits in the space of about six months. And this one goes to number one very soon. And this this was meant to be my grand celebration of the cult pop act's three biggest hits. But first there were the tweets from the anti-mask demonstration, then some dodgy comments about free speech, which fell largely into the category of speech has to be completely free unless we don't like it. And basically, they're now twats. <laughs> so I'll say no more about them. At number 32 are Blur with Pop Scene. We haven't talked about Blur yet, and this single is a landmark in their career, so I'm happily taking a free pick this time. Yes, Blur! Featuring Damon Albarn, geezer about town turned world music aficionado. Graham Coxon, the ever-evolving difficult artist, never letting the grass grow under him. Alex James, toast of high society, roving journalist and cheesemonger. And Dave Roundtree, if we trip over them again, in but two years' time, we'll find them riding high in the top ten with Girls and Boys about to sell 37 million copies of its parent album Park Life in Swindon alone, to paraphrase Britpop's grumpy man Luke Haynes. So is this one that's hit its heights and is inevitably fading out of the charts? No. Is it a limited edition release that literally couldn't get any higher than this? No. This is Blur. Less than a year removed from a top 10 single and album, and only a year away from their next top 10 single and album, releasing their big comeback single for their second album, and struggling to make the top 40. But why so? Well, a lot of the blame, at least from the band, came from its Englishness. Of course, these days, if you say you're English, you get arrested and thrown in jail, so things could have been a lot worse. But back then, as we've seen with our own eyes, Nirvana had started to sweep all before them. And the British independence scene, so recently in rude health with Manchester, was being crushed under a flannel-shirted wave of grunge bands. Indeed, that very week, Soundgarden had a new entry at number 30 with Jesus Christ Pose, and L7 were in at 34 with Pretend We're Dead. This would serve to make the always contrary blur double down on their Englishness. But being £60,000 in debt at the time, their next move was go and tour in the US. That was an attempt to try and get some quick money into the coffers, but when they got back from that tour, no one over here cared who they were anymore because Suede had come along. And believe you me, we will be talking about Suede when they hit the top 40. Anyway, long story short, between Blur, Suede, related acts like Elastica, and the music press's eye for selling papers by creating scenes from divergent bands, no matter how strange the fit, Britpop would soon be born. Stay tuned for more on that. For once, I can't find the Nielsen figures for this show, but it said it was 39th for the week, and only the third highest rated Fox show, after Married with Children and In Living Colour, which has to be disappointing given this was an episode with a big returning character, and the ratings role that the show had been on in recent times. The production number is 8F20, and the writer situation is a bit odder than usual. The story is credited to Thomas Chastain and Sam Simon, but John Vitti, who we discussed in episode 2, Bart the Storming of the Stars HQ, is credited with the teleplay. There's a story there, but also a new face, so let's start there. Thomas Chastain was a mystery writer. In fact, not just a mystery writer, 
He even served as president of the Mystery Writers of America organization in 1989. His best-selling work was a book called Who Killed the Robbins Family? And Where and When and Why and How Did They Die? Yes, all of that. All of that is the title of the book. Reminds me of J.D. Salinger's game show, Hollywood Stars and Celebrities. What do they know? Do they know things? Let's find <laughs> out from Bojack Horseman. <laughs> or any single by the Manic Street Creatures. Absolutely. If you tolerate this, then your children will be next. Anyway, the twist with said novel is that it doesn't tell you who done it, because it was actually a contest to win $10,000, which might explain the high sales. Sam Simon wanted him on board to help them craft a mystery that would be solvable before the reveal, and I think they did an alright job of that. But they also had one eye on an award. An Edgar Allan Poe Award. Or an Edgar, as it's colloquially known. Given to the best mystery fiction in television or film for a given year. They did not win. The chalkboard gag is funny noises are not funny. They bloody are. (laughs) And the couch gag is the thieves again. They'll have a bigger pool of these to draw from soon enough. But what actually happens in the episode? The Simpsons are going to watch dinosaurs. As Bart opines, it's like they saw our lives and put it right up on screen. (laughs) But enough of that fun. Here's Patty to relay an important message about a gentleman that Selma is about to bring round for dinner. And the family tried to think what that disturbing revelation could be. Tom, can you remember what each of them dreams up? Yes. First one, he's the elephant man. Yes. Second second one, he's a sort of Futurama-style head in a jar with a bunch of mechanical instruments keeping him alive. And the third one is that he's Homer. Absolutely, yes. Um, my, my notes for um, the uh, Futurama-style head simply say disembodied head on a science tray which Ooh. which probably shows how tired i was when i was making those notes <laughs> um but there we go yes three out of three congratulations but actually the issue is that selma's date is an ex-convict dun 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 bart is initially pleased as he can learn how to kill a man with a lunch tray but there's a slight problem the man in question is none other than sideshow bob making his return to the show after an absence of nearly two seasons. He explains his past with Bart to Selma, as Homer opines that if some snot-nosed little punk put him in jail, first thing out he'd find him and tear him a new belly button, complete with a mime of said with a steak knife. But of course he's forgetting the first two noble truths of the Buddha. Existence is suffering, and the root of suffering is desire. Bob was driven by his desire to improve children's programming, and it led to bitterness. During his sentence, he won a daytime Emmy for Best Supporting Performer in a Children's Program, beating such luminaries as Droopy Draws, Colonel Coward, Pepito, the biggest cat in the whole wide world, and Suck Up the Vacuum. And his attitude ruined the night. And then the guards confiscated his award. And the other prisoners stole his chapstick. And whilst his license plates tell of the malevolence he felt towards Bart, the letter from Selma really perked him up. And he appears to be a reformed character, having striven to be the best inmate number 24601 that he could be. And upon release, he bade farewell to his cellmates Cutter, Ice Pick, and, by name, Snake, and walked into Selma's arms. He's doing well at dinner, too, charming everyone but Bart, who is naturally reluctant to trust him. And things get worse for Bart when Bob proposes then and there, and Selma accepts. 
more than happy to become Mrs. Scum. <laughs> then we're taken somewhere we haven't seen for a while. The karaoke room at the Happy Sumo. And the couple's rendition of Something Stupid soundtracks a montage of romantic events. Next comes Krusty and Bob's reconciliation at the former's telethon for sufferers of motion sickness, much to sideshow Mel's distaste. And then the white wedding is planned, with Homer recommending cocktail weenies, leading Selma to reveal that she can neither taste nor smell thanks to a childhood bottle rocket accident, and also that she's richer than you think, having put her money into mace stock just before society collapsed. I wish I'd thought of that. Mm -hmm. There's a wrinkle along the way when Bob turns out not to be a fan of MacGyver. But Homer, of all people, saves the day by sharing his strategy of going to Moe's during Marge's non-violent programs and coming back drunk and horny. And despite Lisa's bitterness at not being the flower girl, the wedding goes off without a hitch. Selma is so happy that she announces she's giving up smoking, except for after meals and after MacGyver. But just as all seems peachy, the audience is let into the secret that Bob is planning to kill Selma. We cut to the Simpson family, watching a presumably couriered video of the start of Selma and Bob's honeymoon at Shelbyville Falls. The point of interest here is that Bob is agitated about getting a room with a fireplace. It's an absolute must-have. But why? When MacGyver starts, Bart realises that Selma has one hour to live, and we cut to Bob witnessing an explosion in his room. As he comes back to gloat, he is confronted by Bart, Selma, and Springfield police who may be outside their jurisdiction in Shelbyville, but we'll ignore that, and knowing the corruption on that particular force, they probably did too. Bob's plot was to leave the gas flowing in the fireplace, knowing that Selma wouldn't smell it due to her firework injury, and would light her post-MacGyver cigarette, causing the explosion that would kill her, and allowing Bob to inherit her mace money. Bart then had to explain this to Homer, who can't get his head around it, despite the help of hand puppets. Marge cottons on quickly, and they just about stop Selma from striking her match. And the room explodes anyway when the cops and Homer have a celebratory cigar. Bob is dragged off and vows to be back on the streets as soon as the Democrats get voted in. And the Simpsons are left suffocating in a gas-filled hallway, from which they assumedly depart forthwith before dying. So, usually I ask you what you thought of the, the episode. I, I will do that, but I'm also interested in what you thought of that as a mystery. Mm, I quite liked it. I mean, it's it's um, it's not massively challenging, but they put all the elements together pretty well. You do question sort of whether Sideshow Bob has turned at the at the start of the episode, whether he's gone straight. But um, I do I do like the way they sort of announce that he wants to kill Selma through the. Uh, uh, well, you, you get a very good yuck when he's in the bathroom. <laughs> you know, not not many characters have a trademark. It's not even a catchphrase; it's just a noise. Um, but but sideshow Bob's definitely got one. Yeah, I, I've, I thought it was all put together pretty well for a for a twenty minute episode. It's all there. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the episode. I and I like the mystery. That I, I have to admit, the first time I, I watched it. I knew the fireplace was important because that's very well signposted. Well, to be fair, all the clues are very well signposted. But I'd actually completely forgotten about the taste and smell stuff mm. by the time I got to that point in the episode. So I, I didn't put two and two together the first time. It is it is very obvious when you look back, but I, I still think relatively well put together. 
the uh, the character debut section it hasn't really been up to much recently, but it's all right. We got a big debut in this episode, which I, I can spend a little bit of time talking about. This was the first time that dinosaurs appeared in The Simpsons. <laughs> now, I, I thought it worth having a quick chat about this show, which the, the Simpsons writers certainly thought was taking a few too many cues from their own product. But why would they ever think that the tale of an oafish but caring dad, stay-at-home mum, radical dude of a son, quieter daughter, and there is also a baby character, which debuted roughly 18 months after The Simpsons' first standalone episode, at the absolute height of Bartmania, could possibly be plagiarising them? <laughs> we'll leave you to decide that, but here's the lowdown on the show. Conceived by Jim Henson, the idea was as simple as, let's have a sitcom, but instead of humans, let's have dinosaurs. Notably, Henson died in 1990, but was said to be working on a dinosaur-themed project right up to the end of his life, which presumably turned into this. It was eventually developed by the Walt Disney Company, to whom Henson had sold his company, and it ran for four incredibly expensive seasons. Due to the animatronics and puppetry involved in bringing the characters to life, it has been speculated that it was the most expensive half-hour television show that had ever been produced up to that point. So despite pretty solid ratings, it was a staple of the chopping block. Why it was popular, I'm not entirely sure. Familiarity might have been a key to that. It was full of sitcom staples like teenagers being teenagers, fads sweeping the nation, and troubles at work and home. And all of this was essentially meant to be double funny because it was happening to dinosaurs rather than you. And also because the, the annoying baby had three catchphrases and hit the dad with the frying pan a lot. <laughs> the last episode of season four provides one of the most all-time downbeat endings to a television show when and i'm not sure this necessarily constitutes a spoiler as it's pretty historically accurate the dinosaurs start to die out though they make sure to leave with a heavy-handed message to protect the environment what did i achieve with this segment nothing i mm. just kind of wanted to remind people that this was once a thing that happened yeah and and if you're struggling to remember dinosaurs I'll just give you something that'll jog your memory. I'm a baby! Gotta love me! Oh, do not get in touch if you require therapy for flashbacks after that quote. Um, <laughs> that, that was remarkably accurate, though, Tom. Uh, oh, thank you. Did you know Bob's prisoner number is the same as Jean Valjean's in Les Miserables? See? I didn't miss it this time. I did. That's good knowledge. The song that Bob and Selma sing at the Happy Sumo is Something Stupid. Originally released by writer C. Carson Parks and his wife Gail Foote, but made famous by a not-at-all-creepy, it says here, so it must be true, duet between Frank Sinatra and his daughter, Nancy Sinatra. It's also been released by UB40 lead singer Ali Campbell and his daughter, Kibibi Campbell, reaching number 30 in the UK charts in 1995, by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell on a duets album, one of three that they did, released in 1967, and Michael Bublé and Reese Witherspoon in 2013. But that, I believe, is highly influenced by the most well-known recent version of this, which was released this millennium, the 2001 Christmas Number no. 1, performed by Robbie Williams and Nicole Kidman, another singer-in-quotes-actor-in-quotes duet. And finally, the reunion between Krusty and Bob on the telethon by the chairman of the company is a reference to Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin being reunited by Frank Sinatra, the chairman of the board. 
on Lewis's annual telethon for the Muscular Dystrophy Association on September the 5th, 1976. Tom, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say there's a fair few memeable moments in that one. Well, you would be wrong. Because really? Al- well, although there are lots of, you know, quality lines, there's only really one thing that's memeable, and it's when Marge hugs Selma after Bob has a go at MacGyver, when they're both sat on the sofa, uh, Selma's crying. That's used all the time. So there's lots of great lines. There's Lisa saying, I could have been a flower girl. I wouldn't keep falling down either. Uh, there's Chief Wiggum where he says, now, where did I put my gun? But uh, no, despite being a very good episode, it's it's very, very mean light. Well, there you go. Simpsons meme artists of the world. We've got a, a field for you to plough right there. But enough ploughing right now. I believe we're heading over to Peru. OK, so President Alberto Fujimori of Peru. This is quite exciting for me because I get to talk about a country we haven't covered before. So we're in completely new ground. We'll get to Fujimori himself in a bit. But first of all, let's get up to speed with some of the history of Peru. But where exactly is it? Time for the political geography. Now, for a long time, young impressionable me was under the misconception that Peru was landlocked. And I'll tell you why. It was because of Paddington Bear. In his books, Paddington is described as being from darkest Peru. The origins of the term darkest are a bit shady, but the most charitable explanation is that it comes from cartography. When European explorers were making maps, they would fill in the coasts because that's what they knew. The interior, they would leave black because they didn't know what it looked like. Hence, dark, with the deepest parts of the interior being called darkest. So a young, impressionable me thought that Peru was dark because it was all interior. I didn't realise that its capital, Lima, is the third largest city in the Americas and a major port, and that the country has 2,400 kilometres of coastline. So Peru is in the west of South America, and it borders quite a few countries, five in total. To the north is Ecuador. In the very north of Peru, it converges with Ecuador and Colombia, in one of those have we stood in three countries for long enough locations. And there's, there's an airport there called Lotnisco. The border between Peru and Colombia runs along the Putumayo River. Then there's a long straight border that stops at the Amazon. And after that, you get to Brazil. Then the Javari River makes up 800 kilometres of the border between P- Brazil and Peru. Continuing south, Peru borders the Brazilian state of Acre. Then the Rio Acre forms a big chunk of the border until you get to another free country border where Bolivia comes into play. Then there's a long straight border with Bolivia until you get to the Rio Madre de Dios. Then the border continues south down to Lake Titicaca. Do your own, <laughs> do your own beavers and butthead jokes for if you want. So that I'll do one. You've already heard the dinosaurs impression. I am Conjolio. And you give me from a bunker from Lake Titicaca. We are available for weddings and bar mitzvahs. Yes. So then you have another free country border at the aptly named town of Tripartito, where Peru and Bolivia border Chile. Then there's a relatively short border between Peru and Chile before you get back to the Pacific Ocean. So you go round in one big circle. So how did it end up like that? Well, Peru has been inhabited for millennia. Between 500 BC and 500 AD, the Nazca culture existed. They built the famous Nazca lines, a series of depictions of plants and animals dug into the ground, the largest being 370 metres long. They're now a UNESCO World Heritage Site. In fact, the best way to see them is by helicopter. I doubt a 2,000-year-old civilization meant that, but uh, that's what it is. 
understand they also uh, invented a, a form of motorsport where you only turn left. <laughs> Indeed, very good. So the Spanish first landed in Peru in 1531, but they were preceded by another European arrival, smallpox, which spread south from Panama. Of course, the Inca, who were there before the Spanish, the Inca had no natural immunity to the disease, and they died from it in their thousands. The most high-profile victims were the Incan ruler Hayuna Capac and his family, including his heir. Their deaths left a power vacuum that the Spanish, led by Francisco Pizarro, took advantage of. They killed thousands of Inca at the massacre of Cajamarca, blaming the ruler Atahualpa for it, and they had him strangled. Pizarro then ruled Peru with an iron fist and founded the city of Lima in 1535. And apparently Lima stems from the Quechua word Lamac, and I wondered if that had anything to do with Steve Lamac, the DJ. We can only hope. Well, I googled it, didn't get very far, so if anyone knows, if the DJ Steve Lamac takes his name from the old name for the city of Lima, I'd be very interested to find out. Anyway, so in 1537, the Neo-Inca state was established around Vilcabamba in the interior of Peru. It was set up by Hayuna Capac's son, Manco Inca Yapanqui. They held out against the Spanish until 1572, when its ruler, Tupac Amaru, the son of Manco Inca, was captured and executed. In 1542, Spain created the Viceroyalty of Peru, which lasted until 1824. Quite a lot happened in that nearly 300 years, and the Spanish certainly didn't have everything their own way. They faced a rebellion from Juan Santos Atahualpa in 1742. In 1780, José Gabriel Condorcanqui Nogueira, under the name Tupac Amaru II, led a rebellion around the city of Cuzco. The rebellion was put down and Amaru executed by the Spanish. However, as we will find out, his legacy would live on. Napoleon's invasion of Spain in 1808 left the Spanish colonies weakened. Most of the countries of South America became independent, with many independence drives on the continent spearheaded by Simon Bolivar. See episode 51, Hugo Chavez the Lover, for a bit more on Simon Bolivar. Jose de San Martin of Argentina led a military expedition into Peru. He arrived in Lima on July 28, 1821, and declared Peru's independence to cheering crowds. San Martin and Bolivar had a conference to decide what to do with Peru, and Bolivar ended up becoming the dictator of Peru in 1824. While the Spanish made several futile attempts to maintain control, they eventually recognised the independence of Peru in 1879. Peru and Bolivia briefly united in the Peru-Bolivian Confederation in 1836, but it fell apart in 1839. The 19th century saw Peru engage in several territorial disputes. Between 1879 and 1884, they fought the War of the Pacific with Chile over the southern regions of the Atacama Desert. Chile would win the war, and they briefly occupied Lima in 1881. After the war, Peru entered a period known as the Aristocratic Republic, named so because most of the leaders came from the aristocratic elites. From 1930, Peru entered a cycle of military and civilian governments. Between 1962 and 1980, Peru was ruled by a military hunter. During this period, many industries were nationalised. In 1979, the military drew up a new constitution and pencilled in elections for 1980. One group that declined to take part in the elections and democracy in general were the communist guerrilla group known as Shining Path. 
They were founded in 1969 by the charismatic Abimael Guzman, a former philosophy professor. In 1980, while preparations for the election were in full swing, Shining Path declared war with the intention of taking over the country via guerrilla warfare. They would go on to run a bombing campaign and control vast areas of rural Peru. They had a terrible record of violence and brutality, including the 1983 Lucanamarca massacre, where they went from house to house killing anyone they could find in retaliation for the armed forces killing one of their commanders. Founded at roughly the same time as Shining Path was the Tupac Amaru Revolutionary Movement, or MRTA. They took their inspiration from Tupac Amaru II, who we touched on earlier. The MRTA were much smaller and nowhere near as radical as Shining Path, and their most notorious escapade is still some years away in this story, but they were definitely there. So that's the background, but let's move on to the main focus of this bit, one Alberto Fujimori. And one of the first things people think when they hear the name Fujimori is, that sounds a bit odd. Peru is a country where Spanish is the first language, and Fujimori is a Japanese name. Also, Japan is famously insular. So what's someone with a Japanese name doing on the other side of the Pacific Ocean in Peru? Well, in June 1873, Peru became the first Latin American country to establish diplomatic relations with Japan, and shortly afterwards it became the first Latin American country to accept Japanese immigrants. On April 3rd, 1899, the ship the Sakura Maru carried 790 Japanese people from Yokohama to Peru, and they formed the first wave of Japanese immigrants. Nowadays, Japanese Peruvians make up about 1.4% of the population, which is about 400,000 people. So, you know, it's a sizable chunk. As for Alberto Fujimori himself, he was born on July 28, 1938, in the Miraflores district of Lima, the son of Japanese farm workers who emigrated to Peru in 1934. He spoke Japanese at home, but became fluent in Spanish at school. He was a high-flying academic, and he got around a bit in his 20s. In 1961, he graduated from the Universidad Nacional Agraria La Molina, the National Agricultural University. He was top of his class and he qualified as an agricultural engineer, very appropriate given his family background. Just a year later, he became a lecturer in mathematics in the same university. After that, he went international, studying physics at the University of Strasbourg, followed by a stay at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee on a Ford scholarship obtaining a master's degree in mathematics in 1969. In 1974, he married another Japanese-Peruvian, one Susanna Higuchi. They had four children, the eldest being their daughter Kiko, who was born in 1975. Fujimori's academic career continued at a pace, and he was appointed dean of the sciences faculty at the National Agricultural University in 1984. Whether he was a lousy dean or one that you would hang out and play base with, I have no idea. He was also twice appointed to the rectorship, which he held until 1989. In the late 80s, Fujimori first dabbled in politics with his TV show Concertando, which roughly translates as Coming Together. It was a talk show centred around the topic of agricultural production. Now, that may sound like a subject that's drier than the Aral Sea, but it was an important issue to thousands of rural Peruvians. Given that backdrop, Fujimori decided to found a political party to contest the 1990 general election, Cambio 90, Cambio simply meaning change, a word that we would have seen at Bureau de Changes throughout the world. In 1990, Peru faced a whole raft of problems. The incumbent president didn't do much to address these problems. I mean, the economy was in the toilet, with inflation running at 7,600%. Vast, 
Now, I don't know too much about inflation, but I'm going to guess that's more percent than you want. Yes, definitely. Vast amounts of cocaine was being grown, purified and illegally exported. Also, the communist terrorist group Shining Path were running amok and were in control of large regions of the country. The incumbent, Luis Alva Castro of the Socialist American Popular Revolutionary Alliance, was unpopular. And I didn't mean that as a joke. And his main rival was the novelist Mario Vargas Llosa of Democratic Front, an alliance of economically liberal groups. Fujimori entered the race as a total outsider, but his relentless campaigning among poor neighbourhoods boosted his profile. He had the nickname Chino, a term that literally translates as Chinaman, but it's used in South America for anyone of Asian descent. He embraced the term and used it to his advantage. He was outside the political elite, and this seemed to resonate with a lot of people. Sound familiar? (laughs) In the run-up to the election, Fujimori's polling numbers kept going up, and a shock looked to be on the cards. However, some fraudulent property dealings threatened to derail Fujimori's runaway freight train. But thanks to the actions of one Vladimiro Montesinos, the paperwork of the case mysteriously disappeared and the charges against Fujimori were quietly dropped. The first round of the presidential election was held on April 8, 1990, and ended up with no clear winner. Yossa received 32% of the vote, well short of the majority. Fujimori came second with 29%, leaving the incumbent Luis Alva Castro trailing in third with 22.5%. The second round didn't take place until June 10th, and the result was decisive. Fujimori won with 62% of the vote, leaving Yossa to lick his wounds. Once elected president, Fujimori's first action was to reward Vladimiro Montesinos for getting the real estate fraud charges dropped, and he made him head of the National Intelligence Service. Fujimori swiftly set about enacting reforms. These can be broadly placed into two categories. The first addressed the economy, and the second, the activities of Shining Path. For the economy, the wonders of neoliberalism are the orders of the day. Back in the late 80s, the International Monetary Fund, backed by the United States Treasury, came up with the Washington Consensus, a 10-point plan intended to revive ailing economies. These included things like privatisation of public companies, deregulation, broadening the tax base and removing price controls. Fujimori set about these neoliberal reforms with relish. The effect on the Peruvian economy was immediate, and it's come to be known as Fuji Shock. The minimum wage was quadrupled and the government set up a $400 million poverty relief fund and inflation dropped to 139% by 1991. However, thousands of government jobs were shed and the lack of price controls caused the price of certain goods and services to shoot up. The price of electricity quintupled, water prices rose eightfold and the price of petrol rose 3,000%. The gap between rich and poor rose... But by 1994, the economy was growing at a rate of 13%, the fastest in the world at the time. As for shining path, Fujimori wanted to bring in a series of draconian measures to clamp down on them. The problem for him was the legislative branch of government. Remember, Peru was modelled on the US government and had two chambers of Congress, the Chamber of Deputies and the Senate, both of which were controlled by the opposition. Fujimori's plan to get his legislation through the legislature was a simple one. Get rid of it. So on the night of Sunday, April the 15th, 1992, four days before Black Widow were first aired, Fujimori, with the aid of the army, launched a coup against his own government. Now, with most coups, the army will overthrow the leader of the country and put in their own man. Plenty of examples of this exist throughout history. However, back in Peru in 1992, 
Fujimori was already president, the head of the executive branch of the government. So as he kind of launched a coup against himself, it's known as an auto-coup. Or because Aldato Fujimori was involved, it's also known as the Fuji coup. Basically, anything that he's involved in is Fuji. On the night in question, Fujimori appeared on national television to tell the people of Peru that he was temporarily dissolving Congress and reorganising the judiciary. He had the support of the army, who parked a tank in front of the Congress building to stop people from entering it. There was a standoff, and the deposed congressmen were dispersed with tear gas and soldiers fired warning shots into the air. Various opposition leaders were detained, some even kidnapped. With the legislature and judiciary out of action, Fujimori was free to rule by decree. Now you'd think that Fujimori installing himself as dictator would make him unpopular, but no. A poll taken on the day after the coup by the Lima-based polling company Dayton gave him an approval rating of 79%, with some people worryingly dubbing him the Peruvian Pinochet, or Chinochet. Apparently, people were after a strongman following years of weak leadership. A few months after the coup, on July 16th, Shining Path attacked Lima. At 9.15am, two trucks, each packed with over a 1,000 kilos of explosives, blew up, killing 25 people and wounding hundreds. The event, known as the Tarata bombing, was the start of the week-long bombing campaign by Shining Path. Under the direction of Vladimiro Montesinos, the National Intelligence Service and the Army fought Shining Path and the MRTA with a wave of extrajudicial killings. Death squads, composed of members of the Army, were assembled. They wore balaclavas to hide their identities and were heavily armed with silenced machine guns. They'd go into buildings that were suspected to house terrorists and kill anyone they could find, including children. These extrajudicial killings had thousands of victims, and those that were captured were imprisoned in atrocious conditions. Trials were carried out in military courts where the judges wore balaclavas. It was pretty scary stuff. The violent and illegal clampdown against Shining Path led to the arrest of the leader, Abimael Guzman, at an apartment in Lima situated above a dance studio. He was paraded in front of the media in a very odd way. Guzman was put in a very stereotypical prison outfit, like it's something you'd see in a Warner Brothers cartoon, you know, the black and white stripes, and placed in a cage roughly the size of a shipping container. The cage was surrounded by a giant curtain, and when the signal was given, Guzman was revealed like a prize on a game show. Now, it's rumoured that Guzman did a deal with Montesinos, in which he received benefits in return for ending his campaign. On October the 1st, 1993, Guzman was allowed to appear on TV. In his address, he declared that he had made peace with the Peruvian government, and that Shining Path fighters should lay down their arms. This caused a split in Shining Path. While thousands did lay down their arms in carefully choreographed handovers with the army, thousands carried on fighting. However, without their leader, Shining Path were no longer a real threat. During 1993, a new Peruvian constitution was written, with just one chamber of Congress and more power to the president. In 1994, Fujimori's personal problems came into the spotlight. He fell out with his wife, Susana Higuchi, and he stripped her of the title of First Lady, giving the title instead to their daughter, Kiko. Now, we were talking about rather odd people who sung something stupid. And, you know, Donald Trump never even made Ivanka First Lady, but uh, that's what Fujimori did. He made his own daughter First Lady, which is weird. A presidential election was scheduled for 1995. Challenging Fujimori was Javier Perez de Cuela, who had been the UN Secretary General from 1982 to 1991. He also had another challenger, Susanna Higuchi. 
Yes, his former wife founded her own political party, 21st Century Harmony. However, her party didn't have enough support and she was forced to drop her run. Apparently, they were still like having dinner together. (laughs) (laughs) At that time, it was, you know, they were going through a process of divorce, but they still occasionally met up and, you know, had had dinner with the kids and everything. I just just pictured that. What did you do today, darling? Oh, I announced my campaign to run against you as president of Peru. How about you? Riding high on a strong economy and the defeat of Shining Path, Fujimori easily won the 1995 election with 64% of the vote. The next major event in Peru's history was the Japanese embassy hostage crisis. On December 17th, 1996, hundreds of people went to the Japanese embassy to celebrate Emperor Hirohito's birthday. The MRTA was still active, and around two dozen of their fighters stormed the building while the party was in full swing. They took everyone hostage, and a siege began. It wasn't until April the 22nd, 1997, over four months later, that the siege was ended by military means. Peruvian commandos stormed the building. All but one of the hostages made it out alive, while two members of the armed forces died. All the MRTA militants were killed. The military reaction to the siege was considered an overwhelming success, and it gave Fujimori a popularity boost at home and abroad. Despite the Peruvian constitution saying that the president could not run for a third term, Congress passed a law allowing Fujimori to run in the 2000 election. The logic was that Fujimori had only run once since the 1993 constitution, so his 2000 run was only his second attempt. That's some fairly desperate logic if you ask me. It's like, yes, I was elected to the presidency in 1990, but that doesn't count. Not the same country, different constitution, you see. Look out for that one from the uh, Trump campaign soon. Yes. So Fujimori's main challenger was Alejandro Toledo of the Peru Possible Party. By this point, all of the electoral organisations were staffed by Fujimori supporters, and Toledo alleged that fraud was taking place on a massive scale. But he alleged it before the election, not afterwards, which kind of changed the legitimacy of it. Fujimori received 49.9% of the vote in the first round, necessitating a second. As voting was mandatory and Toledo was convinced the vote was fraudulent, he encouraged his supporters to spoil their papers. 3.6 million people did so. Fujimori won the second round with 74.3% of the vote, receiving 6 million votes, allegedly. Combined, the spoiled ballots of Toledo's votes would not have been enough to beat Fujimori. Shortly after the election, a series of events would conspire that led to the downfall of Fujimori. On September the 14th, 2000, a tape emerged showing Vladimiro Montesinos, the head of the National Intelligence Service, bribing an opposition politician, Alberto Curi, to support Fujimori. Congress was sitting at the time, and the tape caused a huge stir. The next month, Fujimori went to Brunei for a conference, but instead of returning to Peru, he flew to Japan. From there, he announced that the National Intelligence Service would be reorganised, effectively firing Montesinos. He announced a new general election, one that he would not take part in, and he tried to resign the presidency by fax. Fujimori would stay in Japan until 2005, spending his days there as a wanted man. In September 2005, he announced that he was going to run for the Peruvian elections of 2006, and he planned to return there via Chile. However, when he arrived in Chile, he was promptly arrested and extradited to Peru as a prisoner. In 2009, a Peruvian court found him guilty of human rights violations as he had ordered death squads to commit the Barrios Altas massacre and the La Cantuna massacre. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison. In 2017, a 79-year-old Fujimori was pardoned on health grounds. 
However, the Supreme Court reversed the pardon, and as of now, Fujimori is still serving his sentence. As for Montesenos, he was captured while on the run in Venezuela and returned to Peru. He was found guilty of various charges in 2001. He was sent to Caleo Prison, one that he had ordered built in 1990. He was jailed in a cell next to former Shining Path leader, Abimael Guzman. The ironing is delicious. Wow. Well, that had everything. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating country, Peru. And you want to know what happened to Kiko Fujimori, right? She very much followed in her father's footsteps. So between 2006 and 2011, she was a member of the Peruvian Congress. She stood for president in 2011 and 2016, narrowly losing both times. In fact, she lost the 2016 election by just 40,000 votes. In 2014, the Brazilian police launched Operation Car Wash, a huge investigation into money laundering. Kiko Fujimori was arrested on October 10th, 2018, and wasn't released on conditional bail until April 2020, and she's currently awaiting trial. And there's also a chap called Alan Garcia, and he won the 2006 presidential election, served a full term. According to the Constitution, which had changed by then, he couldn't run for a second term. He had to wait. Um, he, ran, he ran again in 2016, but only got 5% of the popular vote. But in 2019, he too was caught up in Operation Car Wash. And after being served an arrest warrant, he promptly hid in his bedroom and shot himself in the head. So it's a, it's a fun game, Peruvian politics. It really is. Wow. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that that's the, the gift that keeps on giving entertainment. I can't imagine it's much fun to live through, but um, yeah, great, great stuff. So usually I, I try and find, uh, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll spoil this for you immediately. Alberto Fujimori isn't in The Simpsons. It's it's sad, really. He he should be based on his <laughs> uh, his reputation and actions. Um, but whilst he doesn't appear, the family themselves wind up in Peru on one occasion, or should I say, most of them do. In season twenty, episode two, Lost Verizon, in a convoluted plot involving Bart stealing Dennis Leary's cell phone at least 10 years after Dennis Leary was relevant, the rest of the family wind up at Machu Picchu, tracking a rogue GPS chip. It's not as bad as it sounds, but not by much. <laughs> and more recently, Lisa also mentions learning about Peru in Season 32, Episode 8, The Road to Cincinnati. I have written here that it's the second-to-last episode that's been aired in the US to date, but that rather depends on when you're listening to us. And on that note... Don't forget that you can find us at retrospectus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org. And check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review any way you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone.